Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. Lord, we are looking for you to do amazing things. And we may wonder how, Lord, we look at how things have unfolded and the circumstances that God is where we are and where could your hand be in all of that? Well, and we know, Lord, it's all shot through with your glory in your hand. Even when we don't feel it, when we can't see it, you're working out a purpose. And we trust you for that. Now as we come to your word, Lord, help us become inwardly prepared to the purpose that you're calling us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon is entitled, In the Month of Nissan. No, that has nothing to do with the automobile company. In the month of Nissan. Every 20 years or so, there's another debate, big debate, on miracles. Every generation feels they have to somehow reinvent the wheel and rethink through the same matters of life and faith that their parents did. Well, and they do. They have to make it their own. And so, from time to time, a new batch of wannabe intellectuals try to tell us that miracles are impossible. The skeptic usually argues that miracles are, by definition, a violation of the immutable laws of physics. And since the laws of physics are, well, immutable, they're absolute and cannot be broken. Now, of course, as an aside, there was a time that physicists assured us that matter is matter and energy is energy and you cannot turn one into the other and then Einstein's E equals MC squared and the atomic bomb rearranged the whole landscape. Today's, and we discovered that today's immutable law becomes tomorrow's suggestion. But believing Christians, however, always counter that God created the laws of physics and is therefore free and sovereign over them, that they are not absolute, but relative and, honestly, practical. So if God wants to bend or break one of his own practical standards, he's perfectly capable and free to do so. To that, the skeptic then responds that Christians are only explaining one unproven assumption, the relativity of the laws of physics, by another unproven assumption, namely the existence of God, and so on back and forth. The arguments pro and con are rarely satisfying. Now, I try not to get caught up in arguments over the physics of miracles for the simple reason that, by and large, the miracles of the Bible generally 
or at least mostly, don't have a whole lot to do with the laws of physics. There are only a, there are a few stories like that. Um, you know, I was sitting there trying to think of some off the top of my head, and there was, let's see, turning back the sun for more hours of, of daylight, there's uh, walking on the water, there's a feeding miracle of multiplying bread and, and fish. Um, maybe floating an axe head. I don't know. Explain that other ways. I can't think really of another one because you see the miracles of the Bible and the miracles that believers continue to experience today are mostly things that can and do happen sometimes. And the miracle is above all a wonder of timing, of timing, that this or that phenomenon happens right at the crucial moment that someone needs it. It's one of those what, you know, what we might call divine coincidences. And sometimes the miracle someone's praying for is a person. Now, by the way, what what I'm saying is that miracles most often have less to do with the laws of physics than the laws of probability. And that's where the miracle comes in. Sometimes it's a thing, sometimes it's a happening, and sometimes it is a person. Now we're looking at the diary of Nehemiah. Uh, it's interesting, Nehemiah I find fascinating because Nehemiah was not a prophet. And he's not listed among the prophets. He was not a king. He was, he became eventually a governor, but that was more by default. He was a bodyguard whose job was to drink or eat, taste, whatever the, the king of Persia received to see if it was poisoned. Which means from the very start, he was considered expendable. It's one of these little men who was completely expendable whom God used to change the history of Jerusalem and the chosen people. So never say, well, you know, God cannot use me or my little contributions because you are no more expendable than Nehemiah was, and look at what God did through him. So here we are in Nehemiah, the city of God is in ruins, the church of God in disrepair. And then one person hears about it. Nobody important, a bodyguard, expendable. It's his job to protect the king with his life, but his passion for the city of God, which is the church, makes him an essential linchpin in the history of Jerusalem. And the bad news hits him hard. It hits him hard. 
He weeps, fasts, prays. He reaffirms God's covenant faithfulness and the mercy of God, and he confesses his own sins and the sins of his people and of his family, even if it's just the sin of indifference and inactivity that allowed this to happen and allowed it to go on unchecked. And he commits himself to get personally involved. He's not quite sure what that's going to look like, but he prays if God will allow it, he asks for God's blessing to do whatever it is he's going to call him to do. Let's take a look at the next episode in his journal, and we'll turn to chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is just a little bit before Psalms. If you flip open your Bible in the middle, you'll usually turn to Psalms. So flip open to Psalms and take a left. Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you're not sick, this can only be sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, well, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen was also sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. May God bless to us this reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Now this part of the story is about prayer and faith and, to be honest, miracles. Nehemiah is praying for direction, for opportunity. 
He's trusting God to open unexpected doors, a divine coincidence. And the miracle he's waiting for takes the form of a human being. One unlikely conversation that changes the course of history. Now, for years, I would read this story and assume that God answered Nehemiah's prayer practically immediately. You know, as if just later that day, he saw the king and made arrangements for his mission. I mean, after all, Nehemiah ends his prayer at the end of chapter 1 with the request, give success to your servant today. And then Xerxes, the king, observes Nehemiah has never been sad in his presence before. So we figure, well, he must be, you know, freshly depressed over the bad news he's just received about the state of affairs in Jerusalem. Uh, and so he's looking, he sees the king today, later that day, and he's depressed. And, the, and then, so the king asked him what's going on. Right? Wrong. Wrong. If Nehemiah spent time fasting, we're told he prayed and fasted, well, obviously, that wasn't going to happen on the fly between breakfast and lunch, right? I'm not sure if that would count as a fast. I mean, if that counts, I fast all the time. So, Obvious, that's, this, there's some time that had to have passed here. And, and Nehemiah tells us he heard about the trouble in Jerusalem in the month of Shislev. Late, that would be around late November in 445 B.C. The opportunity to set something in motion didn't arise until the month of Nisan, which would be around March in 444 B.C. That's four months later. Four months, did you realize that? That was four months in between, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Nisan is the start of a new year in the Jewish calendar, and somehow it's appropriate that God waits until New Year's to start something new. Now, this four-month delay should not surprise us. Think about it. When you want to build something, there's a lot of groundwork to do before the first dirt is moved or the first nail driven. You have to perceive the need to build, the urgency and the timing, the rough concept, the buy-in of other interested parties. You probably have to put together a committee to work on it. I mean, after all, we are Presbyterian. There's lining up financing, 
There's architects' drawings, there's electrical and plumbing engineering planning, there's securing the building permits, there's the ordering and delivering materials. Maybe you have to do an environmental study of the very, of the small uh, warty frogs that happen to live there, whatever. And by the time you actually start preparing and leveling and preparing the building site, a huge part of the work is already done. And the construction is almost anticlimactic. It's the same way when God builds something. God always does his groundwork even when you can't see it. So Nehemiah prays and fasts and waits and waits. Now, first of all, you notice he's not just going to barge in and take charge of the project on his own initiative and strength. I mean, after all, kings do not appreciate pushy servants. And if Nehemiah pushes too hard, too fast, too directly, he's going to destroy every chance of it coming to pass at all. He has to wait and let God do it. Let God prepare the groundwork. If God wants, to do, wants him to do something, well, God must be the one to open the door at the right time to make it happen. He waits for God to move the king to come to him. Now that violates every law of probability. It doesn't happen. It's an unlikely scenario. It's practically a miracle. But Nehemiah knows that's not impossible for God. Now, the second thing I want you to notice right here, right off, is that Nehemiah does not try to manipulate the circumstances indirectly to get what he wants. Let me tell you what I mean. I've known a lot of Christians through the years who say they're trusting God to provide for some personal need, but they're constantly looking worried and whining and wheedling and <sighs> sighing. Have you known any of those? I'm just asking. And I don't want to know names, but we've all known them, and God help us, some of us may have done that at times. Until what happens, we do that until other people get so annoyed, they finally just give us what we want in the first place. And then they say, oh, God provided for me. No, God did not provide. You just annoyed people so much they had to give you something or else, you know, just to hate to say it, but just to shut you up or shut me up. That's not provision. That's manipulation. 
They're not the same thing. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He spends four months praying and fasting in secret. He sees the king on a regular basis, but he doesn't wear his feelings on his sleeve. He never appears sad in the king's presence. And that's a pretty good feat. If you're upset about something and it doesn't show for four months, and nothing shows until the king happens to catch him on a bad day, purely by accident, notices he's a little bit down. Nehemiah it does not create his opportunity. He's not trying to create his opportunity. He simply prays and waits for God to open the doors. So now opportunity knocks, and it knocks three times. The king asks three questions. First, what's bothering you? What can I do about it? And how long will it take? There's no blah, blah, no chit-chat, no blather. He cuts to the chase. There might be a good lesson for all of us in that. Just saying. But I want to highlight here four things about Nehemiah's response. First, what he felt, what he felt. Nehemiah has been praying for this moment night and day for months, pouring out his heart to God. And when the king finally asks him what's bothering him, Nehemiah is afraid. He is afraid. He's not excited. He's not, oh, Jesus heard me. No, he's terrified. Why? Because he's been trying to keep his burden private, hidden. Remember, I told you he wasn't wearing it on his sleeve. He was trying to keep it secret. He was leaving it up to the Lord. Because if you think about it, sad servants do not remain in a king's employ for long. They don't want to have that around them all the time. Nehemiah is praying and trusting God, but he is still afraid. You see, feelings like fear can come and go completely independently of what you think or hope or believe. Feelings of fear are simply what they are. They're nothing more. You can't, don't assume your feelings are any indication of your faith level or of your passion or the level of the will of God or whatever. It has nothing to do with anything. As they, we said when I was growing up, they don't mean nothing. Faith is not a feeling. It's a relationship. 
So if, when you're feeling frightened, what does it mean? Well, it means you're feeling frightened. So, that's all, nothing more. And so ignoring his fear, Nehemiah moves forward and tells the king, to tell the king briefly and plainly what's bothering him. And Xerxes then wants to know, well, what could he, the king, do about it? And here's the second thing. I want you to notice it then says, Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Artaxerxes, or Xerxes as he's known for short, then asked him what's bothering you, Nehemiah didn't, didn't just start, Oh, thou great Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of all that is, and the Lord of your people Israel, we give you thanks. No, he didn't go into a long prayer. Probably just a quick prayer under his breath. Oh, Lord, help me, or something. Four months of daily prayer, and this is what I want you to note. Four months of daily prayer have already disciplined, disciplined him to bring God into every situation. That's his first response when he, this opportunity opens itself is another quick prayer to the Lord, just a heartbeat, pause, to submit himself and this conversation once more to God. That's all it takes. But it took those months of disciplined prayer to get him trained so that his first response, Lord, thank you, Lord, you take over here. Or, if, or maybe it's, Lord, I'm absolutely terrified, you take over here. But just a quick prayer, it becomes second nature now. Third, Nehemiah asks to be sent. He asks to be sent. He does not ask the king to send somebody to fix things. You see, had he done that, I doubt Nehemiah's request would have been fulfilled. I don't think the king would have paid any attention to it. And when Nehemiah then reflects, so it pleased the king to send me, it can only be because Artaxerxes recognized and appreciated a man who would get personally involved himself to make the things happen that matter the most to him. It's that personal engagement, that personal commitment. The king recognized that and was pleased that he, Nehemiah, wanted to go do something to fix it instead of just sending somebody else. Or, oh, king, could you throw some money at this? Now, on his part, I think Nehemiah likely realizes that if God has put it on his own heart so strongly, then it means he is the one being called 
to do it or to head it up. The only people who are going to get a job done and get it done right are the ones who truly, personally care about it. Isn't that true? What kind of a job are you going to do on a project if you just don't care? You're going to get government work. You want people that care involved in doing the projects they care about, because they're going to do it best. <coughs> Excuse me. If God has put something on your heart, then you're the one who needs to tackle that problem. Now, fourth, when the king asks him how long he's going to need to do the work, Nehemiah sets a date. They pencil it into the calendar, we would say. And he already has specific ideas about letters for safe passage, lumber, supplies, what he's going to need to take with him. Now, what would have happened, do you think, if the king had asked and Nehemiah didn't know what to say? You see, the opportunity of the moment might well have been lost, and the city of God left to languish. During his months of prayer, these four months of prayer between Chislev and Nisan, in these four months of praying, Nehemiah has not just been anguishing about what's going on in Jerusalem and about his own emotional turmoil and, and just wallowing in it. He thinks it through very practically, very concretely, and he forges an action plan, sort of along the lines, well, Lord, you know, if I could do this, this is what I think would need to be done. And he clarifies in his own mind what it is he is asking, really asking God to do, which is to give him an audience with the king and incline the king to be favorable, letting the king take the initiative. But he also has to be clear in his own mind what it is he would tell the king. What, not just what he's asking God to do, what would he ask the king to do? What would he need to get to his destination? What would he need to do the work? How much time would he need? How long should it take? You see, time spent with God not only lets us voice our concerns and wishes to God, but it gives God the chance to guide our thinking into realistic and concrete plans. So, as we look at Nehemiah, we see that not every prayer 
is answered immediately. God usually waits, and we have to wait as well. There are a lot of factors in the background that need to be lined up, that are in the process of being lined up. And in particular, Nehemiah himself needs time. He needs time. He has the will to help from from the start, but it takes time to forge a good plan. And without a realistic plan and a realizable time frame, the king would not have approved his request. Not going to happen. Nehemiah needs those four months. He needs those four months to get himself ready, or for God to be getting him ready. But for Nehemiah to be, let's put it this way, for Nehemiah to be gotten ready, that's probably a southernism too, to those from the north, uh, just so you know. God allows for the time needed to prepare his open door and for us to get prepared to go through it. Now, part of that preparation means developing a disciplined routine of talking with God. Faith is all about a close and vital relationship with a God you know you can rely on. That's all faith is. Very simple. And it takes time and practice for that to become more than just a a phase, but rather to become a consistent discipline, something that actually shapes and forms your life. So God waits for each teachable moment to have its full effect in your life as trouble drives you and me deeper and deeper into humble reliance on God. That's where he wants us to be because that's where we are open and yielded to doing what God's going to be asking us to do. Now, this congregation is at a point where it needs a new vision, a new kind of direction for its faith, for its service, for outreach. You have a general commission, a direction, but how are we supposed to flesh that out now for this and for the next generation. As long as everything could rock along like it was before, you know, that every church's sacred routine, that sacred routine that everybody, oh, we can't, we can't do, yes, pastor, we know you're asking us to do thus and so, but we can't do that. We've never done that before. We've always done things this way. Well, look at where it's gotten us now. 
It's time for new directions. And that's a good thing. God gets us here, so we're open to new directions. Because as long as things can just rock along like they have, we won't rethink anything. Because we people, I don't know about you, but I'm brain lazy. Is there anyone here who's brain lazy? You don't rethink things unless you absolutely have to? Okay. So God has to stop us in our tracks. You know, he has to tear down what's been so that we're driven to our knees. So we rethink where we are, where we're going, what the Lord's doing, and where he wants us to go next. That's what's happening here at KPC. We, you and I, we are somewhere in between the month of Chislev and the month of Nisan. You know, when that crisis starts to hit home and the new direction starts emerging. That's the exciting part. We're getting ready to begin to start getting a vision, and I'm, I can't tell you what it is. I don't know what it is yet, but we'll know at the right moment what that new vision and that new direction is going to be. The month of Nisan, Jewish New Year, was the point of a new beginning. Whether it's the future of your church, whether it's the future of your life, some of you personally may be in that situation, may find yourself in this same span between Shislev and Nisan. So when God acts to answer your most heartfelt prayers, that's always a new beginning. And your life can never go back to being the same as it was. And Nehemiah shows us how to get ready in the meantime. Pray in faith and turn your situation, your worries, and your plans over to God. Then leave it to God and don't try to make things happen on your own by direct action or behind-the-scenes manipulation. Let God do it. Don't try to rush things. I'm a, I keep saying this over and over. The Bible says, he who believes will not be in haste. Take your time. Let God take the time. There's a lot that has to be set up first, and God will open the doors at the right time. Then, ignore what your emotions do or tell you, because feelings have little or nothing to do with where God is leading, and they'll only get in your way. They're just feelings. Cultivate a disciplined routine of prayer until you instinctively include the Lord in every decision and circumstance and action. So it comes naturally, maybe supernaturally, but where we just automatically do that, where you automatically 
bring things in prayer, even if it's a quick one under your breath. Let God direct your thoughts in forging a new vision and a concrete, realistic plan for implementing it. Now, there'll be a lot as you go along that will have to be tweaked or adjusted and the timeline, fine, fine. We'll see that happening in Nehemiah as well. But you have to kind of have a general viewpoint. Okay, Lord, what do you want us to do or where do you want us to go? Let him guide you in, in creating a, at least that general realistic action plan. And make sure that you are part of the plan. Don't make a plan for everybody else to do. Have you ever had that someone, someone comes up with wonderful plans, but you're the, you're the one who's supposed to do all, everything in their plan? How did that go over? It does not go over. And it doesn't go over with, didn't go over with Xerxes, it doesn't go over with God. Make sure you're a part of that plan. If you care about an issue or a problem, then you need to be involved in fixing it. There's this story in Nehemiah's journal, a miracle story. Well, in a way, an impossible conversation that shouldn't have happened under normal circumstances, leading to a really unlikely result. But the miracle actually started months before in the heart of a man of God. Miracles still happen, but they begin first in you and in me. Let's pray. Lord, as a church, we need a miracle. We need clarity, we need decisions, we need vision, direction, and we need you, Lord, to open the doors and drop the pieces into place. We yield ourselves, Lord, to be open to thinking your thoughts, to embracing your call, to committing to your future. As we pray, Lord, let each one of us know what you're calling us to do and be and how we can be a part of your solution for this church. Lord, there are many here who are struggling with problems in their own life and need a miracle in their life or the life of their loved ones, their friends, co-workers, family members. Draw them closer and closer, each one to you, into a regular, routine of prayer, not just a gimme gimme or whine whine, but a time of worship and just being lost in your presence and being lifted up and carried by your spirit as you hear their prayers and do the groundwork to prepare the way for that answer to prayer. And we ask, Lord, you would do remarkable things in their lives and in the lives of this church and in 
through this church into the lives of this community. And we look for the name of the living God and our Lord Jesus Christ to be honored and praised through it all. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.